All right, well, open your Bibles or turn your bulletins to Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. It's on page 811 in your pew Bible if you want to look there. We're continuing on in a sermon series titled, Questions Jesus Asks. And our passage today, Jesus challenges his disciples with the question, what reward do you have for loving those who love you? And isn't it true? Our love is often so limited to just those who love us. Thankfully, this is not how God loves, and that's not how children of God are to love either. Matthew chapter 4, chapter 5, rather, verses 43 through 48. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you, Jesus, that you have spoken these words to show us uh, a true understanding of what love really is. Uh, May our hearts be both challenged and encouraged by our time this morning. May your spirit give life to these words and and cause them to move in us and through us. Uh, We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Have you ever gotten so angry at a teacher or a boss that you spoke badly about that person behind their back or perhaps decided to do like mediocre work just to pay them back? Have you ever been so offended at a coworker's behavior that you lashed out at them? Have you ever been so angered at a friend that you decided, you know what, that's it. I'm not putting any more into this relationship. I'm done. Have you ever watched a cable news channel and someone up there is saying something you totally disagree with? Does it ever get you just so angry you find yourself yelling at the television? Maybe you haven't done that. But we all do things like that. We've all responded in this way. And so Jesus has a word for us this morning. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus, of course, is speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. That's where uh, Matthew chapter 5 is. And he, he, he's speaking to his disciples, although others are listening in. He's speaking to those who have experienced the welcome and the embrace of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and their disciples and followers of Jesus. And, and he is showing them, teaching them uh, the way of the kingdom, the way of the kingdom which is so countercultural to the world in which we live in today. And so he spoke to them in the Beatitudes. And, and then he spoke to them about being salt and light in this world, and he, he called them to excel in the area of righteousness, and he even taught them that to call someone was a, a fool was akin to having pre-murderous thoughts towards that person. And in the section just right before our section, Jesus says, when someone 
uh, strikes you or steals from you, um, you're not to retaliate. Instead, you're to, to give them more than what they came for. And, and the result would be that they would see their own sin and they would see your own righteousness. But now he seems to have taken it too far. Love our enemies, Jesus. Love the tax collectors who steal and cheat and deprive us. Love the Gentiles, these Romans who've come and taken over our land, who subjugate us and harass us. Love them, really? As we will see, Jesus knows what he's calling them to do. He knows that it is so countercultural, and, and we sense it too, don't we? we? At some sort of level, we, we get his words. We, we know that we don't love people like we should love people. To genuinely love them. Even people who despise us. There's something about his words that resonate with us. But also, though, it, it seems impossible, right? We, we reject this teaching because it seems so impossible for us to do, to love our enemies. But I think even more than that, I think it, when we peer into our hearts, we realize that actually we really don't even want to do it. It seems like a lot of work. I'm a little bit busy. It's hard enough to even just love people in my own family, let alone people who are out to get me or people who make my life difficult. Does God really expect this of me? Well, Jesus says, yes. He says, if God is your heavenly father, then you are his child and you will love like your father loves. See, the gospel presents us with a God who loves us while we were still enemies. And he loves us in in such a way that he sends his own son to live and to die and to give his life for us. And the gospel offers us this promise that God welcomes those who receive his love into his family. And we become children who love like our heavenly father. That's what we'll see this morning, that God's redeeming love compels us to love all, including our enemies. We're going to divide our time into three areas. First, we're going to look at the the standard of love, then the foundation of love, and then the commitment of love. First, the standard of love. Uh, Everybody has standards that they live by, right? You don't even have to be a religious person. You have standards, standards that you you wish people would uh, uphold, standards of decency, standards of right and wrong, standards of appropriate behavior at work or or, uh, out at a restaurant. We all have standards. Problem is, our standards aren't really high enough. Jesus speaks of two standards in our passage. One is an earthly standard of love, and the other is a heavenly standard of love. First, the earthly standard. Jesus wants his disciples to acknowledge that there is an earthly standard of love that pervades society. It's it's become like fruit that absorbs, if you stick it in, uh, some people like put fruit in like alcohol and it absorbs the alcohol into it and and it permeates all through there. Uh, this, This earthly understanding of love is so pervaded our society that it's become so accepted. We see this in verse 43. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The saying is in two parts. The first part, you shall love your neighbor, and the second part, and hate your enemies. Now, the first part comes from the Bible. You perhaps know where it's found. It's in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. The whole command is love your neighbor 
as yourself. Somehow the old love your neighbor as yourself got cut off. It's just now love your neighbor. Maybe not as much as yourself, but you're to love your neighbor. So that does come from the Bible, though. And the truth is, oh, that everyone on earth would love their neighbor, at least as half as much as they love themselves. The second part, though, doesn't come from the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, and hate your enemy. Such teaching comes from sinful hearts of man, not from God, not from heaven. Now, it's true that in some of the Psalms, I don't know if you've been reading through the Bible in a year, but um, by now, if you have, you've already hit some Psalms, maybe that, that where you see David um, speaking out ang- with anger and, and for God's judgment to come upon people. We, we call these the imprecatory Psalms. But what we need to understand here is David isn't doing this as just some individual like you and me. Who is David? David is the king. And he's praying as the king, that God, um, the, the king of the nation of God's people, that, that God would bring justice and judgment to all of God's enemies. And this is a big, bold prayer that uh, God's people of all generations can pray. But he's not praying as, a, as an individual per se, but he's praying as the king, the one who represents God's people. And we need to know that God hates sin. God hates evil. God has pledged to one day bring justice and judgment to all that is evil, all that is wicked in this world. God does not turn a blind eye to such things. And God does have enemies. And they rightly deserve punishment. And God will one day purge the universe of all that is evil and wicked. Judgment and justice in God's hands is a perfect and good thing. But It's usually not such a good thing when it's in our hands, right? Our justice isn't perfect like God's. Ours is often vindictive. But Paul helps us see that it's good when justice is in God's hands and not in ours. It allows us to actually love people when we understand this. In Romans chapter 12, he says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, But what? But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And he goes on to say, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You can actually love your enemies now because you know that ultimately God will perfectly satisfy the justice that you long for. Either their sins against you will be laid on Christ as they trust in him or they will be laid on themselves at the end of time. And so this frees you uh, to patiently love others and not to repay evil with evil, but evil with good. Now... (laughs) People in Jesus' day, they weren't thinking that way, right? They, they believed that it was, uh, it was a proper and good way to live, to love those who loved you and hate your enemy. That's how people back then patterned their lives. And I think, I don't need to give a whole lot of illustrations. I think we see that in our culture today. But in order to help them see, his disciples to see, and us to see, he gives them two examples. We see the examples in verse 46 and 47. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same thing? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same thing? 
Jesus' first example was the most despised people within Jewish society, tax collectors. Tax collectors consorted with the enemy, the Romans. And, and they, um, they were allowed by Roman law to charge more than was necessary. They lined their own pockets at the expense of their own brothers. They were despised. They were hated. Jesus' point, though, is that even fellow Tax collectors love fellow tax collectors. Mr. Taxman loves his wife and his children, and, he's, and he even likes his neighbor, Mr. IRS man. Tax, if tax collectors can love others, what are you doing that's any different? The second point, he points to the most despised example, rather, points to the most despised people outside of Jewish society, the Gentiles, the, the Roman Gentiles. They hated them. For what they were doing to their country, they subjugated the Jewish people. And if Jesus were here today speaking, I think perhaps he could even say, do not even ISIS terrorists do the same thing. Jesus' point is, what reward do we have for loving others according to this earthly standard of love? You follow that? Now, this word reward, Matthew used the word reward a lot, but... The reward here, the, the term uh, in the Greek here, really means more of like a, a credit, being credited for something. Like, like when you do something good and your boss, she comes up to you and pats you on the back in front of a bunch of people and, and she credits you with doing something really good. That's what he's talking about here. And so the point is, you know, what credit do you think you deserve for loving people who love you? And the answer is none. Even tax collectors do that. Even the Roman Gentiles, they're nice to each other. With regards to this earthly standard of love, in what way are you being challenged this morning? Do you see that in your own life in any way? Do you see yourselves harboring that type of love towards other people? That's the earthly standard of love. Now for the heavenly standard of love. The heavenly standard of love can be summarized in the words of Alfred Plummer. I think his quote's on the front of the bulletin, but you don't have to turn there. But he says, um, to return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. There's a heavenly standard that Jesus points to in verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. These words might sound quaint to us today. Oh yeah, that sounds like really nice. Sounds, yeah, Jesus was just, he had some really nice things to say. Well, it wasn't quaint in Jesus' day, and it should be in our day. This was revolutionary. Nobody ever said anything like this. Search all the ancient manuscripts of any culture, and you will never find any command to love your enemies. It's nowhere to be found, which tells us what? This, there's a love that's not of this world. There's a love from heaven that, that we must come to understand and embrace. We're to love our enemies. You know, our tendency with, with Jesus' words are to redefine them. Remember when that one man came, the teacher of the law, he wanted to know who his neighbor was? Jesus, well, tell me who my neighbor is, if I'm supposed to love my neighbors myself, because he really wanted to define neighbor as to like some guy he liked, you know, he plays video games with or poker, right? Um, 
But Jesus then told him the story of the Samaritan, the good Samaritan. Remember, the Samaritans were that, that nation uh, to the left, to the west uh, of Israel, and the Samaritans were despised. But it was the Samaritan in the story who demonstrated what a good neighbor was about. And the, and the, the point was, anybody that you come into contact in your life, they have a possibility of coming in contact with, uh, is your neighbor. Now, we also like to ask the question then, well, well, Who's my enemy, you know? See, maybe I can deal with that difficult coworker, but if you're asking me to love my, my ex-husband, well, no way. I'm not going to do that. But Jesus won't let us redefine the word enemy into something less demanding. He teaches us that whether it's in your home or in your neighborhood or in your workplace or, or even across territorial boundaries, uh, if there's anyone that you've come in contact with or heard about or in any sort of way and they've, they have it out for you or any sort of way, uh, that is your enemy. It doesn't matter where they are. Now, what does love like this look like? I hope you understand that Jesus isn't calling us to some sort of sentimentality, to just having nice thoughts about people and just thinking, yes, in a perfect world, I could love this person. Um, that's not what he's getting at. The love that Jesus calls us to is an active love. It's not simply some mental activity that you do in the privacy of your home or in the safety of a nice, warm, welcoming Bible study. This is you moving out in deeds of love and service towards other people. The Apostle John writes these words to the early church. He says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Love is active. Love goes and finds a problem and, and, and ministers to it, redeems uh, bad relationships. Um, love makes peace. It's, a, it's an active love that Jesus has in mind here. Jesus describes one way in which we are to love, and he says we're to pray for our enemies. Christian, your difficult boss or teacher, who other than you is praying for him or her? Consider the millions of people in this world who have nobody praying for them. I think one of the reasons why I actually came to faith eventually when I was 29 years old was I had people who along the way were praying for me. We were to pray for our enemies. I've had to make it a rule in my life that I'm not going to approach somebody that either wronged me or wronged somebody else without having prayed for them, without having come before God and say, God, I, I want to have your love for this person. I want to approach this person with the same mercy and grace that you have shown me. Sometimes it's taken me many days before I'm actually able to come before somebody and in a, in a desire to, to honor them and love them and to glorify God in my interactions with them. I've found that if I don't do this, that, that it's all about me. Mark Middlecoff proving my point or rubbing your nose in what you've done wrong. If I don't take the time to allow God to change my heart towards another person, chances are that's how I'm going to treat them. It won't be, even though it seems like love, it's really not love. But tell me what happens when you start praying for someone. I mean, really praying for them. Praying that God would 
bless them and care for them, what happens? Isn't it true that you change? You begin to view your enemies with an eternal perspective. You, you long to see their souls redeemed. And you begin to see through their harsh facade. You begin to become more forgiving, more charitable. You hold uh, more loosely to your well-deserved anger. You begin to be more forgiving. And you begin to become more like Jesus, who as he was being crucified, prayed Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We must pray for those who persecute us so that we come to the point that we love them and we wish God's blessing upon them. This is the heavenly standard of love. It's totally foreign to how we are wired, but God, he's wired that way. It comes naturally to him. To God, there is no other type of love. Next, Jesus points us to the foundation of love. And where is it that he points us? He points us towards heaven. Essentially, he says, this is how God the Father loves. And so if you are a son or daughter of him, you will validate the fact that you're a part of God's family when you love this way. We see it in verse 45. He says, we're to, you know, in verse 44, we're to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may become sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now first, he's not saying if you love people well, then you're going to earn your way into heaven. That's not what he's saying. He's saying because you already are sons of God, when you love people this way, you're going to show the world around you that you have, you're a child of God because this is how your Father is, right? I mean, we have earthly fathers and, we, we, and mothers, and we can kind of take on their characteristics, can't they? My dad used to drive my brother and I crazy. I've told you this, but we in checkout lines. My dad was so outgoing. He'd make friends with everybody in the checkout line. It would drive us crazy, right, at, at the supermarket. Um, but you know what? I think I do that to my kids, right? So, um, you know, we start to take on the characteristics of our mothers or, or fathers, good or bad, right? Um, how about you? Is there anything, any characteristics or qualities in your life that you go, you know, that's my mom there or that's my dad there? Jesus' point is, if you've experienced the love and the welcome of God that brings you into his family, you will love that way. And you will demonstrate that you truly are a child of God. You don't earn your way into heaven, but once you've experienced his embrace, you demonstrate that you belong there. Jesus says, your Father in heaven is the foundation of this divine love. And then he provides an example that proves it. You see it in the second part of verse 45. He he says, for he makes his son to rise on evil and on the good, and he sends his rain on the just and the unjust. This is a remarkable truth. I hope you see what's going on here. When I first came to Christ, when I would read this passage, I would, I would be blown away at the way in which God loves. Because I was, it, was, it struck me that I don't love this way. You know, I don't, I don't desire to lavish grace upon all people, but that's what we see going on here in this passage. What, what we see here is, is that he lavishes sun and rain on all the earth. What that means is, is, is that's where life comes from, sustenance to, for our daily bread, for our own existence. And, and he showers it upon this earth indiscriminately upon all people. 
It doesn't matter if your name is Abu Masab al-Zakarwi or if your name is Reverend Billy Graham. God provides life-giving sun and rain to all indiscriminately. Theologians call this God's common grace uh, over and against God's saving grace. God's saving grace is the grace that comes to you and me that, that gives us eyes to see Christ and to turn and repent and, and believe in him and to be welcomed into God's family. Paul describes God's saving grace in Romans chapter 5, verse 10. He writes, While we were enemies... While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Modern Americans don't think they're enemies of God. They don't give him any time or day, but they would surely say, I'm not his enemy. If you have not laid down your arms and turned and trusted in Christ and come back to God, you were really just an enemy on the run. Salvation, the saving grace, is God coming after enemies and giving them the love and the, and the, the forgiveness that they need through Jesus Christ. That's what Paul tells us, that while we were enemies, God reconciled us back to God. Reconciliation speaks of relational connectedness. That's what Christ has done. He's brought you back into a relationship with the Heavenly Father. God sent his son into this world. God sent his son into enemy territory. His son did not return evil uh, with evil. Rather, he returned evil with his good, our reconciliation. That's God's saving grace. And not every person, unfortunately, experiences God's saving grace. But all of the world experiences God's common grace, sunlight and rain, which causes food to grow. Even people who vehemently deny God's existence know what it's like to enjoy a juicy Shake Shack burger. Or if they own the stock, the price escalation. Or they know what it's like to walk on a beautiful, sandy, sunny beach. There's a goodness of life that even the vilest terrorist enjoys. God causes the sun to rise and sends rain on the evil and the good and on the just and on the unjust. So the love, the standard of love that God calls us to embrace is one that's only found in heaven and it's only found in our heavenly father. But it's a love that we have experienced if we've experienced his saving grace. And so it should be a love that we know something about, correct? But we must study it all the more. We must soak it in and we also must Praise God for it. We must sing about his love that he's given us. We must share it with other people. We must speak of it so that others can experience it. So we looked at the standard of love. We looked at the foundation of love. Now let's look at the, our, the commitment to love. We see it in verse 48. There we read, Jesus says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. All right, how about a little grammar and word study here? In the original Greek, the word you in Greek is placed in a spot in the sentence that makes it emphatic. And our English translation here helps us because the word you is right at the beginning. You, or in Texas, 
all y'all, right? All you, um, you who are children of God, therefore, must be perfect. Therefore, introduces the conclusion that Jesus wants us to embrace. Therefore, that is the result of all that Jesus has been talking about, that he's just spoken to us. Uh, Because you were once enemies of God, but now you're children of your heavenly Father. Because you now see how your heavenly Father extends his common grace towards all humanity. Because you've rejected this earthly form of love and you've embraced his standard of love. Because of all of this, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now what does he mean by perfect? Well, scripture does call us to be holy as our heavenly father is holy. The standards to which we live as Christians haven't been lessened because we've experienced his grace. No, they haven't at all. Sometimes Christians use the grace that we've experienced as an excuse, right? Nobody's perfect, right? People say that. Maybe you've heard me, I get on people for saying that. Because some, most of the time people say that, they're really not saying, I'm not perfect. I'm in constantly in need of God's grace and I repent and I need his forgiveness daily. That's not what they mean. Usually when people say that, they mean, nobody's perfect, so uh, I'm going to excuse myself here. It's a way of avoiding the cross, It's a way of self-forgiveness that's devoid of any real sort of uh, gospel truth. But the perfect that Jesus is speaking of here, I think commentators point out, isn't that type of perfect as in never missing the mark, right? But but when I say that, it it doesn't mean that's going to be any easier. Once I describe to you what the word perfect means in this context, I think you'll realize it's still pretty darn hard, (laughs) Um, the Greek word perfect comes from the word uh, it's teleos and it it can mean perfect it can mean uh, whole complete mature goal or an an end It it can mean any of those things Paul calls people to be teleos in Christ mature in Christ Most commentators conclude that what Jesus is getting at here is that our Heavenly Father is so complete, uh, perfect in that sense, that he even loves his enemies. And so too, our love must be complete in the sense that it is all-inclusive as well. Our goal is that our love should be like our Heavenly Father's love, a love that is perfect and that it lacks for nothing. It has no earthly limits. As one commentator, he put it this way, he says, there's to be no limit to your goodness. And I might change the definition of perfect, but it still sounds pretty hard, doesn't it? Jesus says we must love like our Father in heaven. Have you committed to love this way? Are you committed to love this way? Who who are the people in your your lives right now that, that... you sense our enemies, but that God would desire you to love them and pray for them. Who are those people in your lives? Think about that. You know, it's hard to love this way. We're so prone to waver. In the heat of the moment, things intensify. Bursts of anger come out of our mouths. Where did that come from? What began as a solid commitment 
on Sunday easily wavers on Monday. What are we to do? First, I think we must recognize our failure to love as our Heavenly Father loves, and then reaffirm the goodness of the way in which He loves and commit to it. And then I think we need to go back to the cross and be reminded that though our commitment may waver, God's commitment to us never does. It's at the cross that we're reminded this. God declares to his children that on the cross that not only are the hostilities over, but that he has welcomed us into an embrace, an embrace of a heavenly father. And that embrace will never let go. There's nothing we can do that can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. That's his commitment of love towards you when you fail in your ability and your commitment to love others. Paul writes, I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. My friends, that's God's commitment to you if you are his child. You can't unwind that. You can't undo that. That's why the gospel is so amazing. That's why the gospel is so powerful in our lives. It empowers us to love others like our Heavenly Father does. Because when we fail, we're reminded that our Heavenly Father loves us in such a way that we cannot fail. Do you get that? Does it it cause you to want to sing and rejoice? I hope it does. This is good news. A lot of sad faces out there. This is good news. All right. So we've seen this morning that God's redeeming love compels us to love all people, including our enemies. Jesus' command to reject all, uh, commands us to reject all earthly standards of love, but, and then to embrace God's heavenly standard of love, and that we're to love our enemies and pray for them, and, and that we're, we're to commit to love this way, that we're to desire this. We're not to give ourselves any excuses for not doing this. Now, I want to conclude by addressing maybe a hot topic that's on your mind. Perhaps you're thinking, what about ISIS or Boko Haram or Al-Qaeda? What about these terrorist groups? How are we to respond to them, Uh, especially in light of what's happened in this past week? We hear about atrocities and our hearts burn with anger. Let me remind you of something. There, There is such a thing as righteous anger, anger that hates evil and hates what evil does to the goodness of God's creation. Often our anger is its hard to be purely righteous, but there is a righteous anger. And it's right to, be, um, to pray that God would bring an end to what's going on. It's even right to join our armed forces to go and to fight against evil of other nations. It's inappropriate for you as an individual to go and to wage war with another individual but God has given us the institutions of, of, of the civil governments and, and civil governments have a right to go and to fight against evil and we should. Let's call it what it is. Let's fight to put an end to it. But let us all also not forget that we're to pray for the individuals, for the enemies, for, for people who 
have become captive to sin and to hate and to wickedness. These are people made in God's image. Yes, extremely depraved and and far short of who God's calling a human being to be. Yet they're made in God's image and we should, as individuals, be praying for those individuals. Now, let me give you an illustration. I know this is hard. Uh, Let me give you an illustration, though, from World War II. There was a lot going on in World War II. There was a lot of evil in World War II. Hello, Third Reich. Hello, you know, uh, you know, Japanese imperialism, right? Let me give you a story from World War II. And uh, no, it's not from the movie uh, Unbroken. Uh, I've not seen the movie. I've read the book. It's a great book. That Zapparini guy is amazing. Uh, that would be a good illustration as well. I'm going to give you a different one because you all probably know that one. Imagine the hate and the anger at the bombing of Pearl Harbor. It was the 9-11 of that day. Tens of thousands of Americans the next day went out to join it with anger burning in their hearts to defeat the evil of the Japanese Empire that came and destroyed so many lives. One such man was Jacob de Chaser. He was, uh, he was a, he wasn't the pilot, but he flew on a, on a bombers over the Pacific and one time he was, back in 1942, April 18th, they bombing Tokyo, and, and his plane ran out of fuel, and they had to jump. He made it to safety, but then he was captured by the Japanese. And one thing I'm sure you know about the Japanese was they were extremely cruel and brutal to the prisoners of war. For at least two years, he almost starved to death. And then, uh, somehow, some way. A Bible made it into his hands. And he read it from cover to cover. And then he committed his life to Christ. And he said that he immediately realized that this demanded changes in his life, even while he was in a prison camp. One day, after an exercise period, DeShazer, his guard, he hurried him towards his prison cell and he shoved him inside and he slammed his foot uh, between the door and the wall. Instead of opening the door and letting him pull his foot in, he pushed all the harder and the prison guard took his big hard boots and was kicking DeShazer's foot. In desperation, he closed the door and he said his mind blazed with rage. However, Jesus' words came to him. Words he had memorized. Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do do not hate them that hate you. And pray for them. Nursing his foot, DeShazer wished for a while that, that his mind would go blank. But instead, his head was filled with scriptures that God had caused him to memorize. After calming down, he decided, he realized, God commanded me to love. What a wonderful world it would be if we all would try to love one another. I'll try. The next morning was a test. The Shazer greeted the guard respectfully in Japanese. The guard gave him a puzzled look but said nothing. Every morning, the prisoner offered friendly greetings and received no response. But then one morning, the, the guard walked straight into Shazer's cell and spoke to him uh, through the door, and he was smiling. The Shazer asked him about his family and how they were doing. From that time on, the guard treated him with respect and kindness and once even brought him boiled sweet potatoes and another time gave him figs and candy. Eventually, the war ended 
the Shazer did what? He returned to Japan with his wife Florence to spread the gospel, to plant churches in what was once enemy territory. He even printed out his testimony, his story of how he came to faith in Christ in a Japanese prison cell. Over one million of those were distributed throughout Japan. Years passed, and then in the early 1950s, there was a knock on the door. No, it wasn't the prison guard. It was somebody else even more spectacular. His name was Mitsuo Fushido. Excuse me, Fushida. Mitsuo Fushida. Who was he? He was a senior commander responsible for the bombing of Pearl Harbor. He was the man who organized the planes, who requested the bombs, who trained the 360 pilots in their planes. He was the first one over Pearl Harbor, and he was the last to leave it. And he, this man, read the testimony of the prisoner who now loves the Japanese people. And he was confounded. And, and he heard that, that it was the Bible that caused him to have a change of heart. And so um, Mitsuo went out and he, he got a Bible and he read it and he came to faith in Christ and he put his trust in Christ. Because of one man's commitment to love his enemies, this man, who in his day was one of the most despised people in the world, Now he had become a committed follower of Christ, a dearly loved child of God. DeShazer was committed to love his enemies and pray for them. He brought the love of his heavenly father and he scattered it on this earth. My friends, that's our calling too. To take this love that is hardly at all found on earth, bring it from heaven, scatter it amongst the earth, and allow God to do his work in the people we encounter. By God's grace, may we love our enemies and pray for them. Father, we thank you that you are this way, that you know of no other kind of love. This is who you are. This is what love is. It's a a love that endures persecution. It's a love that chases after enemies, not to bring them harm, but to bring them hope. May we be a people who embrace that and live it out by the power of your spirit, we pray. Amen.